is an infection wave headed our way? I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. For part of tonight, we'll have a very special co-interviewer at about half past, uh, one of the people who helps make this show go and often works behind the scenes with little credit, uh, will be part of our second interview, but we'll be with you for the full hour discussing evictions and questions about policy behind bars, all of which relate in one way or the other to COVID-19, a story that we've been talking about, obviously, for many months here. Today is July 15th, kind of hard to believe we're already halfway through the month of July, but that is also four months to the day from the day that Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo announced that New York City schools would shut down. At that point, it seemed for just a couple weeks, obviously, that was the last time anyone was in school in New York City. Uh, and it is four months from that. Obviously, a lot has transpired since then. At the time, of course, that seemed like a, a fateful move and massive move, reflective of the gravity of the situation facing the city. Uh, quite simply, it was very soon dwarfed by some of the other numbers and things we were thinking about and dealing with. Uh, but we are obviously very much still in that crisis. You know, the national story about COVID obviously has moved on. People are talking about Texas and Florida. They're talking about the increasingly nasty fight between the White House and Dr. Fauci at the CDC. Uh, but there is very much still a New York story here. You know, the death toll in the city is, as of one o'clock this afternoon, stood at 23,353 people. Uh, that's in a city where regularly every year we have about 58,000 deaths. So the scale of mortality, which grows by a few human beings every day, still is something to be gasped at. And there are reports now that there's an increasing number of infections among young people in New York City, perhaps a consequence of the opening of bars and partial opening of restaurants and, and offices, too. And that is disturbing because while young people still are not going to likely to die at the same rates as older people, they can transmit the disease to one another and to people who are older or otherwise more vulnerable. And that's the pattern that's been seen in some of these other states who are hard hit. And it appears to be mapping itself here, although overall the rate seems to be uh, dropping uh, and, and staying fairly low in terms of the indicators the city and the state are looking at. But obviously that is very much still with us, and so is the other big conversation of the past few months, which is police reform, policing, questions about the use of force, questions about racism, structural racism in many of our institutions and especially in law enforcement. And today Mayor de Blasio signed a suite of bills that is meant to attack some of that problem, uh, including uh, a ban on the use of chokeholds across the NYPD, which goes beyond an existing prohibition in the police department's patrol guide. This now has the force of city law, um, a law that protects the rights of citizens to record the police um, in going about their activity. Um, some new structure for the NYPD's disciplinary matrix. It's a list of what it does to officers when they're found to be breaking the rules. Uh, and new transparency on the use of surveillance technologies. This is a law sometimes referred to as the POST Act. We had uh, the NYPD's Deputy Commissioner for Counterterrorism on talking about this law on 9-11 of last year, describing its dangers. It was a law at that point that seemed to have no chance of passing, and now it is it is law. And finally, a measure that would require NYPD officers to have their shield number and rank displayed uh, and visible at all times when they're on the job. So those are measures that were passed by the council very quickly in the weeks uh, following the George Floyd murder and the protests that broke out. Some of those bills had been bandied about for some time and others were newer, but they are all now part of city law. In addition, as many of you might know, there is new video of an incident involving the police and attack 
at some point uh, in recent weeks on a, a, a man named Joseph who was on a train um, and two officers who were on that film. There are calls for them to be fired, obviously bringing into stark relief, again, these questions about use of force um, and uh, the policing of distancing and the policing of, quote unquote, quality of life offenses. A person who was approached by the police because he was allegedly taking up two seats on a subway that was not crowded. And obviously that is the next incident we'll be picking apart and talking about. So as I said earlier, we're going to talk about housing and COVID. And housing is something that is has been an issue in New York City uh, since before many of us were born or arrived here. Uh, it will always be an issue because it's a big city and a popular place to live where there's only so much land. But from the earliest days of the COVID crisis, the concern has been about what would the impact be on the city's fragile housing market. You already had a lot of people very close to the edge of affordability. You had many thousands of people in homeless shelters. What was the impact of this crisis going to be on affordability by renters and on the ability of homeowners, especially low-income and moderate-income homeowners, to continue to make their mortgage payments? So a lot of concerns about that, a lot of activity in Albany, uh, some activity here, a rent freeze on rent-stabilized apartments, no increases this year. That was uh, achieved by the mayor. Uh, moratorium on evictions achieved by executive order and then amended over time to be weakened. Some new bills just signed in the past couple of weeks to create new protections for tenants, but still a lot of concern about what's going to happen next. One interesting fact before we go to our first uh, interview, today I was looking up the homeless shelter census, which is obviously just one indicator, but a very harrowing indicator of our housing situation. Interestingly, that number of people who are in homeless shelters has been decreasing uh, since the crisis hit. Uh, it now stands at what I think is its lowest level since June 2014, uh, and that is good news. It reflects a lot of different dynamics, including some standard seasonal ones, some other issues that are playing out, some choices being made, some programs kicking in. But at the same time, the number of single adult men in the shelter system appears to be higher than ever. So it's a complex topic. It's one with a lot of different nuances and uh, threads to pull apart. And here to help us do that is one of my favorite sources, a longtime uh, source and advocate and uh, a fighter for justice in the Bronx, Mr. Fitzroy Christian, who is a longtime Bronx resident and a member of Community Action for Safe Apartments, or CASA, a community advocacy group very active in the sort of central west Bronx. Fitzroy, welcome to Max and Murphy. Thank you, Jared. Um, very happy to be here with you, joining you in this as it's a very complex matter of housing in New York City during COVID-19. Indeed it is. And, and let's start with COVID-19, Fitzroy. Speaking broadly about housing, about other stuff you've seen over the past four months, what's the impact of the pandemic been on your neighborhood? What have you seen? What has changed? How has it felt to you? It is difficult to have real numbers, at least for me, because of the inconvenience of not being able to check things out in person. So a lot of what I am going with and what CASA is hearing um, is anecdotal. But from that, it does appear that the narratives that we're hearing about the large amount of people in our area of the Bronx, the Southwest Bronx, um, is fairly accurate, that there are a lot of people who have been impacted. And it is not surprising because 
a lot of the folks who live in this area are people who still have to go to work. They're um, first responders of one type or another. And so they have to be out there battling COVID-19. And then they go home to apartments that are crammed with people because a lot of the apartments are overcrowded. We have multiple generations sometimes living in a two or three bedroom apartment or two or three families sharing a two bedroom apartment. So when these people who may be asymptomatic or who may um, be showing signs of COVID um, infection come home, they are infecting other family members and also neighbors. As a result, we do have large numbers of people who are sick and too many people, unfortunately, who are dying. But as I said, had numbers are hard to come by. That we kind of confirm some of the things that we are hearing. But, yeah, we do believe that um, it has a tremendous impact in our area. Tell me about, and obviously, you know, this is reflective of different challenges faced by different people, different resources. But in that area, would you say that people are still uh, adhering to mask rules and adhering to social distancing and our stores still trying to keep the density of consumers down? Do you think people are still taking this threat as seriously as they did a month or two ago? Um, there seems to be a slackening of that um, intensity over the last few weeks. Very early on, yes, I thought that from what I saw, that people were following all of the rules and all of the instructions um, that came out of uh, Washington or from Albany or even from City Hall. They were observing social distancing. But as I said, over the last few weeks, as the weather got a lot better, I have seen where people are going out there enjoying the parks. Um, I haven't been to any of the beachfront, so I don't know what the crowds are at the beach. But if you go to any of the parks, you do see a lot of people and the children running around, which means they're not necessarily staying close to their own household members but are interacting with other friends, um, other people in the parks. So there has been some level of relaxation. Um, hopefully it does not give rise to a new peak of um, people who have been infected by the pandemic. But um, mm-hmm. I don't think people are uh, observing observant as they were when this whole thing began a couple of months ago, several months ago. Yeah, and that's that's certainly true around the city, too. Every every neighborhood you go to, you see that. But let's talk about the worry about evictions. Obviously, that's one people had it from the get-go. I'm sure it was on your mind. Uh, you know, in fairly early days, the governor imposed a moratorium uh, on evictions. Um, it, it, it did not cancel rent, but it imposed a moratorium, and that's been extended in, in some ways. Do you think that was effective in your area? Do you think it, it has protected people from evictions so far? No. All that it has done was the delay the inevitable. The only thing that will protect people is the cancellation of rent. Saying that we're not going to allow them to evict you now, but we allow them to evict you later makes no sense. Because a lot of these people are home because their businesses were closed or they were ordered to stay home because of the pandemic. 
they have no source of income or some of them have their income greatly reduced because they're working part-time. Some have only unemployment checks coming in and they have additional expenses because they're at home doing things that they normally would not have been spending money on doing. So no, the folks do not have the money to pay now. And, um, the last numbers that came out of the Fairman Institute says that there are upwards of 750,000 folks in New York who are three to four months in arrears already. Saying that, okay, you can't be kicked out now, but you can be kicked out later, or if you can prove that you were affected by COVID-19 and that caused you to lose your income, you may not be kicked out at all. You may not be evicted at all. But we're going to give your landlord a money judgment against you so that they can come after you um, when you go back to work. They could garnish your salaries. They could probably come after your assets if you have a vehicle that you may need for work or whatever. So they have not been doing anything that will really permanently have tenants and poor folks. They are just kicking the can down the road a little bit, and then eventually um, that moment will come where folks have to go to court, face eviction, um, become a member of the expanding homelessness population, simply Mm -hmm. because um, City Hall and Albany are too cowardly to do what is necessary and cancel rent and have people protected so that they can stay in their homes and their community. So we're talking Fitzroy Christian uh, from the Bronx Group, CASA, housing advocate uh, uh, of longstanding. If you want to be part of this conversation, if you have a quick question for Fitzroy about this topic of evictions and housing and COVID-19, please call 212-20-2877. That's 209-2877-212-209-2877. uh, Fitzroy, talk about the, um, the the concern about cancel rent, and, and you make the good point that many people have, have they've canceled rent because they, they didn't have much choice. That's something Senator Mike Generis, the sponsor of the bill, said in this program several months ago, is that you can pass the law or not, but the rent is going to be canceled for some people. It's just a question of whether they're going to be evicted for it or not. Um, the argument that, that you get back from the property owners is that uh, if you cancel rent, but you don't uh, write off the, the mortgage debt that many landlords use rent to pay off. You create a potentially dangerous dynamic where uh, building owners do not have the resources to maintain a building and you could have uh, unpleasant or even unsafe conditions develop as maintenance suffers. Do you think there's anything to that concern? No. <laughs> that is- Why not? Um, if we look at the numbers that show up during the rent guideline board hearings, we would understand that over the last 30 years, let us say, um, property owners have been making an average of about 30 cents in every dollar that they have spent, which means they have tremendous reserves over the years. Um, and typically during the Giuliani and the Bloomberg years, where there were massive um, 
rent increases given by the RGB every year, no matter what condition the economy was in. We all know that the landlords benefited greatly then, and they have been able to put, or should have been able to put a whole lot of money aside, especially since they were not spending that money that they were making and maintaining the buildings properly. So we know that they have the money. Plus, we know that New York has a very strong, well-funded corporate welfare system going where they always find a way to bail out landlords in particular or other corporate giants when things go bad. They have the money to do that. They have been using it. Um, The city also has um, a tax program where if a landlord can show that they have made less money this year than they made the previous year, that they will be taxed at a lower rate to have offset their inability or the lack of profit that um, they normally would have made or that they may have made the year before. The state HCR, um, Homes and Community Renewal, have a similar program where if landlords made less than 5% profit this year over last year, all they have to do is go to HCR, open their books, and said, here is here, here are my books, here are my numbers. We have made less than 5% profit. If they can do that, ACR allows them to increase their rent above and beyond what the RGB uh, allowed them to do so that they can make some more profit. So there are many, right, many the, ways. The hard, hardship exemption, I think they call yeah, that, that a hardship exemption. Yes, right. exactly, yes. So there are many, many ways that the state and city have found a way to bail out the landlord. We're speaking about housing, so we'll forget the other corporations for now. But there are many ways that the state and the city have found to bail out the landlords who can show a hardship of any type. But they have mm-hmm. not anywhere um, along the line designed or come up with a similar program that would be able to assist tenants when they face hardship. Um, the That's right. One and one of the, um, one of the uh, policies the state has, has adopted is uh, this emergency rent relief bill authored by Brian Kavanaugh, which would create some sort of fund for qualified, but it's, you know, the eligibility is somewhat narrow, obviously. I'm curious, Fitzroy, one thing the city did do and, and you were part of the movement that helped to make it happen. Um, obviously, concerns about eviction well predate the pandemic. And for years, there was a push for a right to counsel in New York City, basically equivalent to criminal court, where you get a lawyer if you can't afford one, giving people a lawyer when they're indigent and facing eviction and housing court, because that's proven to vastly increase your odds of, of getting through that process without being forcibly evicted. Um, that law was passed. It's being implemented in stages. Some zip codes have the lawyers uh, on offer now. Some don't. Do you feel as though as we, as we approach August 20th when the moratorium is lifted entirely, um, do you think right to counsel as it stands now creates some sort of a shield uh, for tenants? Is it, is it going to be effective? Um, it is, but not as effective as it would have been if 
the Office of Court Administration and Albany had made the playing field um, as even as they could have made it. Let me explain what I mean when I say that. The fact that the law says that if the tenant can prove that they were affected um, by COVID-19, and that was the reason why they were in arrears, they may not be evicted. But for the first time, the law provides housing courts to issue a money judgment against a tenant. It never happened in housing court before. So you're still going to be on the hook, even though you're not going to be evicted. And years down the road, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the landlords are still going to be able to come after you for that money. Mm-hmm. A lot of us um, know that people live in paycheck to paycheck. They have absolutely no savings. The slightest issue that uh, a lot of families are going to be in desperate straits with absolutely no income, no way to protect themselves. But they're still going to be liable to the landlord for four, five, three, maybe three, four, five months of rent. Eventually, the landlord is going to go after their paychecks, which means they're bringing home even less, which means they would not be able to pay their current rent, which means they're going back to court, and this time they're probably going to be evicted. So they have not really done anything to have tenants. There are three mm-hmm. other bills that have done a whole, that offer a whole lot more bills that the Right to Council Coalition and the Housing Justice for All Coalition um, support. We have to write these bills, and I'll give you just a brief overview of what they propose to do to show what it means to have a real or real legislation that put people over property and put lives over profit. Um, the first one that's um, sponsored by Salazar and New will cancel rent university starting from March 7th for the duration of COVID-19 plus 90 days. So this will give tenants three months after the state of emergency has been um, lifted to catch up on their income, to have a little cushion, to mm-hmm. be able to take care of your family and yourself the way you are. And then from the fourth month onward, then you begin to pay your rent again. All right, so that's why um, you say there are two, two more, right? Pardon me? Uh, t- that, that's one bill and there are two more bills. Go. We have about uh, two yes. minutes left, so tell me what the others are. Oh, Um, eviction moratorium that prohibits Ah, eviction for commercial and residential tenants for the duration of the state of emergency plus one year after the emergency ends. And the third one is a housing access voucher program that gives homeless New Yorkers an immediate pathway out of the shelters into permanent housing and provides low-income individuals and families um, the ability to for rent protection, and over the long term, have created a pathway towards permanent housing, as a par, as opposed to relying on the shelter system as we have been doing. 
Yes, and that bill is, is an idea that has been kicked around for, for many years and now seems more yeah. urgent. Yes. Um, Fitzroy, before I let you go, I just want to ask quickly, because you mentioned it, commercial evictions is something that we haven't talked about. When I say we, I mean the world enough. Um, they obviously were a concern throughout the city before COVID, especially in rezoned neighborhoods like the one around Jerome Avenue. But have you seen a lot of stores around you go belly up as a result of COVID-19? Are you seeing more um, shutters pulled down permanently? Yes, but the difficulty is I don't know if it happened because of the rezoning and the leases came up or it happened because of COVID. Yes, there were a number of places that were closed recently along the Jerome Avenue corridor, but I was not able to speak with the folks, so I don't know what caused them to close. Well, that's a very telling telling answer, Pittsburgh. Yes, Uh, it's hard to tell sometimes which pressure uh, commercial tenants or residential ones are responding to. But thank you so much, Fitzroy Christian from Community Action for Safe Apartments in the Bronx. Uh, Thanks very much for being on Max and Murphy. Please come back again. We'll do that. And thank you very much for having me.